Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxell attorney, Phil Mackay. Phil Mackay is the chair of Holly Troxell's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, he has helped establish the patent program policies and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Hi, my name's Phil McKay. I'm the Patent Department Chairman at Holly Troxel Ennison Holly uh, here in Boise, Idaho. Uh, today, I'm giving you the first in a, a series of uh, presentations regarding patent law. The purpose of these presentations is really designed towards the small inventor or the company that's just getting into patents. Um, it's, it's a hypothetical discussion. It's going to be very generalized and somewhat simplistic. Uh, in, in actuality, like all areas of law, patent law is driven by the specific circumstances surrounding your case. So please don't mistake this for absolute patent counsel. Uh, if you have patent issues, uh, you need to really get in touch with your own patent attorney and give them all the facts and specifics of the case. In line with that, I have the following disclaimer. The following material is intended for hypothetical discussion purposes only. Nothing herein should be relied on or construed as legal advice. Nor should the material herein be used as a substitute for the opinion of legal counsel based on a full understanding of the law and the particular facts associated with specific issues. So again, if you have specific patent questions, you really need to go find your own patent attorney and engage with them. But this should give you an idea of the overview uh, of the topics discussed. Uh, in this case, today's is on patent introduction, introducing some of the theory of the patent law, what you can be provided through patent protection and what you can't. In general, uh, a patent, an issued patent, and we'll make that distinction a little later, the difference between an application and a issued patent. But once you have an issued patent, you have a property right, which provides you a monopoly for a limited period of time. That period of time is 20 years from the filing date of the application. So it's a pretty decent chunk of time. Uh, in general, the United States legal system does not tolerate monopolies. However, patents have been carved out as, as an exception in a recognition of the need to bring people out of their garage or out of wherever they're making these inventions and share them with the public. The idea being that if the, the patented technology is put out there, improvements can be made on it and everybody basically benefits from that. So basically think of your uh, jobs in Wozniak, for those younger, those were the founders of Apple, who basically started in their garage. Well, we want them to come out of their garage, show their technology to the rest of the world so it can be improved upon. However, there's a recognition that we want to make sure that these people feel that their secrets will not be stolen and they have an opportunity to monopolize their ideas and monetize their ideas uh, before others are allowed to use them. So in short, the deal is 
In exchange for this 20-year monopoly from the filing date, the inventor has to disclose the invention and has to disclose it in such a way that someone of skill in the art will recognize how to practice the invention. Now, there's a first key concept. That is basically called enablement. And we'll be using that term a lot in this series. But enablement means one of skill in the art will understand the patented invention by reading the invention. That skill in the art, I'm sure you heard me emphasize that, really varies from technology to technology. You do not have to explain your invention, for instance, if it was microprocessor architecture, you don't need to explain that so that you're picking anybody off of the street, they would understand your patent. In that particular area, you might be dealing with a PhD in some form of electrical engineering, might be your person of skill in the art. So it has to be understood by that person, not just anybody off the street. Uh, again, one of skill in the art, uh, basically varies significantly from technology to technology, but that's the person you have to enable. In other words, they have to be able to read your patent and understand what the invention is. So this is the monopoly you get, and then there's different ways of getting it, uh, different types of patents, I should say. Uh, the first, and probably the one I have the least experience with, is plat uh, plant patents. Uh, these are issued for asexually reproduced plant species only. In other words, if the plant can reproduce itself, we're not going to give you a patent on it. Uh, the next one that uh, is really increasing in popularity and always has been popular is design patents. And these are generally issued for things that are not functional, uh, features of your invention that have nothing to do with the functionality of the invention but make it unique. Uh, one example I use often when I'm speaking to people is a computer mouse. If I have a computer mouse, anything associated with that mouse interacting with the system and doing what it's told or causing files to be transferred and so forth, that would not be subject to design patent protection. However, if I made that mouse in the shape of a character, such as, for instance, Darth Vader's head, then the mouse in the form of Darth Vader's head would be eligible for design patents, assuming there was no prior art uh, and other protections. But it, the idea is that it's not just a computer mouse, it's a specific design of computer mouse that's distinct and often has an aesthetic value. The other area where design patents come into play now much more than they used to is they're being used for user interface screens and other things in software that where it's the appearance of the screen, not the functionality of the buttons, but perhaps where the buttons are placed or how they're highlighted. This could also be eligible for design patent protection in some cases. By far, uh, the most common type of patent is what's called a utility patent. This is what most people think of when uh, they talk about patents. These are uh, issued for functional inventions. Uh, in the design case I just discussed, now if you were indeed the first one to create the computer mouse, uh, all the functionality inside that mouse that allows it to interface with the, uh, the CPU and the, and the computing system, those are all eligible for utility patent protection. There's one other type of patent protection which uh, is fairly popular, although somewhat misunderstood. This is a provisional patent application. A provisional patent application um, gets you all the rights in terms of filing date that a utility patent application gets you, but the provisional patent application itself is never examined. It itself never issues as a patent, and it's really just a marker in the sand. 
as I'll discuss in a further uh, segment, uh, provisional patents often come into play when there's what's called uh, bar dates uh, that have been gotten too close to file a full utility application. There's also other strategic and tactical reasons for potentially filing a provisional application. Um, the, the key components of a provisional application is that first of all, once you file the provisional, you have to file that full-blown utility application within a year. And that's absolutely key. Otherwise you don't get the provisional protection and you can lose some rights. Um, in addition, the provisional application, um, when they first came out, and I think still to some extent today, people think of a provisional as just slapping together uh, their notes, putting a header on it, and filing it. And you probably could file a provisional application, and I've seen some that look like that's what they were. But the trick to a provisional application is you only get protection for what has been enabled in that provisional application. Remember, enablement means you have disclosed the invention so that one of skill in the art by reading it would understand your invention and how to practice it. A lot of times if you're just slapping together lab notes or what's at hand, uh, you might not get that enablement uh, requirement satisfied and that can be a problem with provisionals. When in doubt, uh, given all the factors, finances, timing, and so forth, uh, a utility application is really preferred most of the time over a provisional. Like I said, there's some tactical and strategic reasons you might file a provisional. Uh, that's outside the scope of this segment, but we'll uh, address that in one of the later ones. So there you have it again. The four categories are plant patents, design patents, utility patents, and provisional applications, which never actually issue as a patent. So the next question comes, what is patent? Well, under the patent law, there's a famous case out there where the statement is made, anything under the sun made by man, but not necessarily everything done by man. And uh, that was pretty accurate and pretty broad for most of the patent law's history. And it still is the standard. However, with the um, emergence of software uh, restrictions, uh, it's become less true than it used to be. And that's going to be a series of two or three of these segments about software patents because it is incredibly complicated, undecided, and uh, really still up in the air uh, here nine years after the Alice decision, which was the, the seminal decision uh, establishing the new standard for software. But continuing on, the things that are not patentable, is natural phenomenon, something that naturally occurs that you may have discovered the relationship, like for instance, E equals MC squared or F equals MA, uh, but the fact is they existed, you just happened to discover the relationship. Well, that's not an invention. Uh, in addition, laws of nature, well, same thing, E equals MC squared, uh, F equals MA, uh, and then abstract ideas are not patentable. Well, abstract ideas is where uh, the problems come about with respect to software patents. And again, that's a completely different uh, set of presentations. Software patents are indeed somewhat more difficult to uh, write and some more, somewhat more difficult to get allowed. And I'd have to say that if your software patent or patent is directed to a business method, that's probably the most difficult area of patent law to get allowed at this time. Uh, at this time is uh, here in September of 2020. Uh, the law is changing so fast and it's so 
unclear at this point that it's important to give you that date. What is patentable and what most people uh, need to understand because they all think that a patent has to be at the level of the light bulb, which by the way itself evolved from previous technologies, but it's new collections of existing elements and devices is probably the biggest category of patents as opposed to this paradigm shifting thing like a light bulb. So if you're taking existing elements and devices and you're using them in a significantly different way, or if you're using them for a different purpose, or you're using them in a new combination. These are all very patentable areas. And uh, like I said, 90% of the patents are probably directed to this type of uh, change. It has to relate to a legal endeavor. So if you have some new method or system for doing something illegal, well, you're not gonna get a patent. Um, the one that uh, comes to mind is uh, there was a case years ago, back in the 70s, where somebody had come up with a system for automatically injecting heroin. So if you passed out, uh, you could still get, uh, uh, you know, you could still do it and not worry about it. Well, that was considered to be directed to an illegal endeavor and was not patentable. But here's the important walk away here. There's over 10 million issued patents. That's, there's no way those are all light bulbs. Again, very, very few are at the light bulb paradigm shifting level the vast majority are these new collections of existing elements and devices. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is the parts of a patent very briefly. But um, basically it kind of breaks down into two pieces. The specification, which is just patentees for the description of the invention, and then the claims, which is where the attorneys really go crazy. But the specification has parts to it that are sort of common. Not all of them are required. But this is where you explain your invention. The key to the specification is that you want to list as many different ways and bells and whistles associated with your invention. These are called embodiments in patent law. You want to get as many as you can possibly get into that specification because once you file the patent application, you cannot add to the specification without actually filing a new application called a continuation in part or CIP. So you're kind of stuck with what's in the specification and I'll explain the significance of that in a minute. But the specification is your toolbox. So you definitely want to get as much in there as you can. As an aside, any good patent attorney is somewhat of a translator. We should be able to speak the engineering of the particular technical space we're in, and we should be able to translate that into, well, in many cases, into English. And then we should be able to translate that again into legalese to get the patent protection you're seeking. But that's sort of like the, the lowest bar. You have to be able to do that to be able to be a decent patent attorney. Uh, a good patent attorney will take it to the next stage, and as we're talking to the inventor, and as we're talking to you, I guess, as the inventor, you might come in and you have a specific way or mechanism for doing X for the purpose of Z. Let's say you have a green widget for doing X. Let's use that. A patent attorney will definitely take your specific way of doing it or specific embodiment and make sure that finds its way into the application. But it would also take it to the next step and say, okay, I understand you have a green widget. Tell me about red widgets. Could we do red widgets? Could we do blue widgets? And could we do it for X, Y, and Z instead of just X? And basically that's called broadening. And what we're trying to do is get you as much coverage as we can and as much as you're entitled to without bumping again, up against what's already out there. 
Uh, I will talk more about that in a later segment, but just giving you an idea of the importance of the specification and the things you want to make sure are in there. In terms of the parts of the specification, there's a background section. This is not technically required by the law. The background section, um, you just want to make sure that you're uh, not uh, revealing part of your invention in the background section because the examiners can use that against you again in a later segment. But the background section is actually where the patent attorneys get to tell a story. How horrible the world is without your invention and all the things that just we don't have because your invention wasn't on the scene. And so it is a bit of a salesman uh, section and it's it also probably some of the more creative writing that patent attorneys do uh, would be in the background section. The next section is the summary section. Again, this is not required, but it's sort of standard practice. And the summary section follows the background section. So in the background section, you tell the world what a horrible place it is without your invention. And then lo and behold, in the summary section, you come through and uh, the hero on the horse and say, look what we've done. We have made the world so much better. This is how we do it at a very high level. Then we get to the detailed description. Okay, this section is required. This is where you have to provide that enablement. You have to enable one of skill in the art to practice the invention. And remember, that skill in the art is not necessarily a person off the street. It could be somebody with a PhD, but you have to make it so that somebody of skill in the art reading your patent understands your invention. The next section is the figures. The figures are basically drawings, uh, usually quite uh, closely tied in with a detailed description. And then the last required section is the abstract. And the abstract is a one paragraph, I think 140 words or less, so it's basically a tweet, right, that uh, describes the invention, and it's usually used for searching purposes. Okay, again, I want to uh, be very um, clear that once the patent is filed, you're stuck with what's in the specification, and that is the toolbox, and it's a toolbox for amending the next section, the claims section. So when you're reading through the specification as the inventor, you're reading it like a technical paper, and uh, it should be fairly clear to you. Uh, you know, there'll be a little bit of legalese in there, and there'll be some detail, and you say, wow, why did you describe it that way? But more or less a technical paper. Then you get down to the claims section, you'll say, wow, who took the leash off of these patent attorneys, and why is this reading like Greek? Assuming you don't read Greek. Uh, so the claims are very difficult often to read, uh, very legalistic. Uh, one of the things that makes it difficult is these claims can go on for what would normally be several paragraphs, but you're only allowed to have one period. By, you know, so it, it, we get really creative when it comes to the use of colons, semicolons, and commas, but it makes it very difficult to read. And uh, the significance of the claims and the, way they have, the reason they have the structure they have is that, remember, this is a property right. And so they tried to make it read like a description of property. Uh, if you ever look at uh, the deed to your house, uh, it very carefully describes a specific geographical point to another geographical point and creates boundaries around what is your house. Well, the claims try to do that uh, regarding your invention. As I discussed earlier, we want to broaden this. We want to take uh, and create a property line via the claims that not only encompasses your house, which would be your core embodiment, but also tries to pick up an acre or land or so around it so that people can't design around it or trespass. Uh, there's the about the end of that analogy as far as I want to take that. But here's the significance of the spec uh, you know, brought to light. 
In the course of prosecution, which means when you're arguing with the examiner to get, your, get you a patent, uh, the patent will probably 85% of the time they get rejected on a first office action, and that's when the lawyers step in and argue. But we can change the claims based on what the examiner found, and we can make what's called an amendment to a claim. Well, you can only amend a claim based on what is disclosed in the specification. So if you fail to disclose a green widget, and it turns out that the best way to get this patent is to claim a green widget, well, you've got a problem. So you want to make darn sure you have that green widget in the specification. Then you can amend the claims based on, again, that toolbox, the toolbox being the specification. Okay, there's some other issues here regarding patents that uh, will be hit in another segment, but there's, um, there's what's called bar dates, and there's ways that you can lose your patent rights based on uh, actions you take. And I'm going to be giving a segment on this, doing a segment on this, I should say. Uh, I think it's actually the next segment I'll be doing. But you want to be very careful of these. I get a lot of phone calls uh, from small inventors, and they've already kind of shot their rights down uh, because they did one of these things and uh, then didn't get a patent on file, well, in the U.S. within a year and in most foreign jurisdictions before they did this. But these are public disclosures. Again, we'll talk about this in another segment sales or offers for sale, and public uses. Be very careful with any of those three, uh, especially if you have foreign rights or if it's going to be more than a year before you file that patent application. And remember, be nice to your patent attorneys. Give them 60 to 90 days to write you the best possible patent. So don't wait till day 364. Otherwise, you'll be filing one of those provisionals that get slapped together, uh, like I discussed earlier. The other thing you need to know about the patent law in general is that we are now first to file, which makes us like the rest of the world. Uh, it used to be, now ancient history, but when I was practicing, uh, that uh, we, we worried about who was the first to invent. Not who got to the patent office first, but we would actually allow investigation into who actually invented this thing first and give the patent rights based on that. Well, that was cumbersome, although I would argue very fair and very good for the small guy. But uh, now we're like the rest of the world. It's first to file. And again, there'll be another segment on that down the road. The other thing I want to hit here is one of the questions I get all the time. What to patent? Especially if you're a startup company or you're trying to come up uh, with some protection for a technological base that you feel gives you a competitive advantage. Well, that sort of answers the question. What you should be asking yourself when you're thinking patents. And you should be thinking patents. There's so many patents out there now. 10 million. What do I do that would be devastating to me and my company if the competition was able to copy it or worse yet, get a patent on it and stop me from doing it? You know, if there's something when you're giving that elevator pitch or you're thinking about what the identity of your potential company is or the potential product you might want to license is, if there's something that absolutely makes you better than the competition, like the reason you went into business, you better think about getting a patent on that. Uh, and again, uh, because of first to file, uh, you know, you, you have to be careful to get a patent on it uh, before the competition does. That's an important key thing. Uh, so again, what am I doing that my potential competitors, partners, licensees would want? And why am I in this business? Why do I feel I'm better than the competition? 
what are my core advantages or core competencies is the term they used to use. Um, and then why get a patent? I mean, you might say, oh, I'm not going to go out and sue anybody. I don't want to go out and, uh, 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 you know, beat up on people with these patents. You might even not like the idea of a monopoly at all, even in patent form. But here's the main reason why and why most people at the beginning of a business get patents. It's for what's called defensive purposes. To, to make sure that you have the freedom to operate and the freedom to use your own invention. And if somebody comes at you and tries to stop you or throw their own patents at you, you have something to defend yourself and throw back. Uh, and so, like I said, uh, in the vast majority of cases, people want these patents for these defensive purposes. Now, I will say in a significant percentage of cases, as the company grows, they start to recognize that they can go out and actually use these patents to stop others, and they become more offensive, if you will, in uh, going out and actively protecting their rights. But originally, it's almost always for defensive purposes. Then there's one last thing I want to hit. And remember, this is a very general introduction to patent theory and patents, and you, you, know, you really need to approach your own patent attorney at some point and get uh, advice specific to your situation. But there's something else that comes as a surprise to many people patenting for the first time is the length of time it takes to actually get a patent. In general, you can figure two years for simple mechanical and up to five years for software. So that is means two years to five years from your filing date are you, and, and under best circumstances, going to get an issued patent. Uh, however, one thing that's important, that filing date is key. Uh, as I'll discuss later, these uh, ways that you could shoot yourself in the foot, the public disclosure, the offer for sale, or the public use, uh, these, that all becomes irrelevant once you file that patent application and you have that filing date. And that includes provisional applications. However, remember, you're only protecting what is disclosed, is particularly in the case of provisionals, um, not other add-ons that you might want to discuss uh, down the road. But the filing date is key. Once you have that filing date on the invention as you're going to disclose it, you can go out and do what you want with it. But to actually get the issued patent, two to five years. So keep that in mind. Anyway, that's all for this very general introduction to patents. Again, I want to restate for the third time, I believe, that uh, you really want to, if, you, if you're thinking about patents and you have questions about patents, you really want to go find your own patent uh, attorney and uh, have those questions addressed uh, within the framework and lens of your specific circumstances. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, hopefully this was helpful and watch for further installments. Thank you.